Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're reading Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and to and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given us uh, given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for this revelation of the infinite grace and wisdom of your purpose and plan as it's revealed to us in the book of Ephesians. We're not going to plumb the depths of this text today or in a week or a month I believe it'll be the text that will be used in heaven for all eternity. But would you give us a love for this passage? Would you give us a great sense of your greatness and your goodness and your grace, which you have lavished upon us in the person of the Lord Jesus? May this text produce in us the worship which you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I can't adequately put into words how delighted I am to be diving into this marvelous epistle with you. Throughout my life as a child of God, this book has been one of the most influential in my walk with God, in my marriage, and in ministering to others. Every home Bible study I've ever led, beginning with one that I led in college, has included this a study of this letter at some point. Most of them started <laughs> with the study of this letter. I've been batting around uh, several possibilities for a, a title for this series for a very long time. And you'll notice that the one in your bulletin isn't the one that I ended up with. Yesterday morning, this one particular title 
pushed all the others I've ever come up with right out of the window. And that title is Grace-Driven Godliness. Paul sent this beautiful letter to the churches in Asia Minor, likely starting with the very influential port city of Ephesus, while he was under house arrest in Rome for the crime of faithfully preaching Christ. The charges against him were other than that, but that was why he was, that was why he was in prison. Paul tells us in the first verse that he's writing to the saints in Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ. So we know that the book is written to believers, not to unbelievers. Most Christians, and guys, whenever you hear me use the word Christians, I'm always referring to real redeemed children of God. Most Christians encounter seasons of life in which the words of the great hymn It is well with my soul, just don't seem to apply. The struggles of life on this cursed earth are relentless. The lure of our old sin nature is relentless. And our enemy is very good at what he does. We walk daily in a minefield of relationships with people who are just as sinful as we are. And all of that combines to often to leave us feeling much more needy than blessed and much more overwhelmed than useful. John talked about that some this morning. And by the way, I, I loved the, the tie-in of the worship service this morning with this marvelous epistle and with this passage. Now that that struggle that we have to believe that it is well with our soul does not mean that we are of no use to God during those discouraging seasons. God is, is masterful at using even reluctant ambassadors to accomplish His work on earth. And if you don't believe that, go read the book of Jonah. Now I know that Jonah wasn't indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but I also know that there are a lot of Christians like Jonah. If you are in that mode, beloved, you need to know that God prefers joyfully useful over reluctantly useful. And it's not hard to tell which of those is better for us. A lot of Christians that I know try really hard to do the very things that the Apostle Paul sets out in the last half of this book when he's telling us how we are to live. They work hard to throttle their angry outbursts. They work hard to do, to to speak the truth. They don't steal. They strive to be generous in giving to others. They don't cuss, drink, or chew, and they don't go with girls that do. They do their best to love others sacrificially and to muster up godly forgiveness when someone else sins against them. They might even crank up enough courage every now and then to share the gospel with a coworker or a family member. And God uses them like He used Jonah. But for too many children of God, whatever usefulness they do have for God's eternal purposes strikes them as more of a burden than a delight. And brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever good God manages or doesn't manage whatever good our sovereign God does accomplish 
through that kind of life, that is not a walk worthy of our calling. When Paul commands us in Ephesians 4.1 to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, he's referring to a way of life that actually matches up with and puts on display whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. He's talking about a humble, grateful, joyful habit of life that makes God smile with delight. And beloved, there is only one way. There is only one way that a believer comes to live that life. And it is by knowing, believing, and banking on the outrageous grace that God has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. And that's what this epistle is about. It's about grace-driven godliness. Ephesians is one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline at the highest level. And thanks to whoever assigned the chapter divisions a long time ago, it's also one of the most symmetrical. It's divided into two halves. Chapters 1 through 3 is our blessed calling in Christ And chapters 4 through 6 is our worthy walk in light of that calling. To put it another way, (laughs) the first half of the book is about the outrageous riches of being in Christ, and the second half is about how outrageously rich people live. Ephesians is a marvelous example of the unbreakable connection between theology and real life. Real life, by the way, as we saw in the Gospel of John, is what? Somebody somebody knows the answer to that question. What did Jesus say real life is? That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Real life is relationship with the living God through union with Christ. Here's the real kicker. We cannot... And we will not live as God intends us to live if we jump to the what to do part and skip the what equips and drives us to do it part. That won't work. There's a very definite pattern along those same lines in the New Testament epistles, especially the letters of Paul. In Romans 12.1, many of you know that verse, Paul commands us to present our bodies as living sacrifice to God Holy sacrifices entirely dedicated to God's purposes. And he finishes the rest of the book after chapter 12, verse 1, telling us what that looks like in real life. But that forceful command to lay ourselves on the, on God's altar comes immediately after the words, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What mercies? Well, the mercies that Paul has been laying out in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, which is the greatest treatise on the grace of God poured out on mankind in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the theology, the truth (laughs) that God has revealed about whose we are and what He has done for us in Christ drives the practice. In the same way, in his letter to the Colossian saints, Paul prays in Colossians 1.10, 
that, quote, you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. But before Paul gets into the nuts and bolts of how that how those good works play out in the believer's life and in the corporate life of the church, he first devotes two chapters of that four-chapter book to talking about who Jesus is and what He has done for us. See, over and over in his letters, Paul does this. (laughs) He says, in effect, God saved us to use us. He redeemed us for Himself that we might do life on His terms. And be useful to him. But, but, but wait. <laughs> Let's not put the cart before the horse. There are some things that we have to know and believe and count as true if we're going to do life on God's terms. And Paul then starts with those things. That's where he starts in Ephesians. And he doesn't waste any time getting to the point. In his opening salutation, after telling us who wrote the epistle, Paul, A lot of debate about that, but it was Paul. And that it was written to believers. Paul includes an opening blessing that's very similar to what you'll find in the first paragraph of every one of his other letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gets down to business. And he starts talking about our outrageous riches in Christ. He declares that that blessing of grace and peace from God isn't some kind of empty greeting. Like when we're walking down the street and we pass somebody and say, how are you doing? It isn't something that Paul hopes will become true of his readers. It's something that he declares to be true of every redeemed child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now what does that mean? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When you and I pray in keeping with Jesus' template for our prayers that that is popularly known as the Lord's Prayer, it should be called the Disciples' Prayer, we see early in that in that pattern of prayer that the very first and really the overriding request that we submit to God is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that, we are in effect saying to God, Heavenly Father, make things here like they are there. Make earth like heaven and Father, use us to do that. Paul tells us in verse 3 that God already did exactly that in you and me when He put us in Jesus Christ. He made things on earth like they are in heaven. He brought us into a heavenly reality while we're still here. He has already blessed us, His children, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If you're not His child, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone to save you from the eternal debt that you owe to God because of your sin and to cover you with the perfect righteousness of Christ forever, then none of this 
applies to you. I'm going to put the whole outline for the next couple of weeks up here on a slide. And we're not going to dive into these parts and pieces this morning. But as you look at that outline and as you scan this passage, what I'd like for you to look for is the big overarching theme that ties all of these blessings together. And I'm about to tell you what it is so there's no big mystery. First in verse 3 is the is the summary declaration. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then verses 4 to 6, we have been chosen and adopted by the Father in Christ. Verses 7 and 8, we have been forgiven and redeemed in Christ. Verses 9 and 10, we have been clued in on God's plan to reconcile Heaven and earth in Christ. It's no longer a mystery. He's told us. And then in verses 11 to 14, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for our eternal inheritance in Christ. What is it that that just ties all of that together? Well, all of those blessings have been lavished on us by God in order to draw us into the blessings enjoyed in heaven. God has brought you and me and us together as His church into the same blessings that have been experienced in the heavenly realm from eternity past. And what are those blessings? What blessings have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit been enjoying for all eternity? Even when nothing existed except the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Would those be physical blessings? Well, not before anything physical existed. Would they be financial blessings? Yeah, right. God needs money. No. They're relational blessings. They're the marvelous blessings of perfect love, perfect communion, perfect fellowship, and perfect unity of character and purpose that have been enjoyed by the three persons of the Trinity forever. And beloved, those are the blessings into which God has welcomed us through our union with Jesus Christ. That is why you won't find any situational blessings in these 14 verses. That's why you won't find any financial blessings. That's why you won't find any temporary blessings at all in these verses. And that's why you will find the Trinity all over these 14 verses. Because our amazingly gracious God has drawn you and me and us together into the eternal blessings of the triune God in Jesus Christ. And only in Jesus Christ. Only through our union with the one who is the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God. And that, beloved, is outrageous grace. Some have called Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 the greatest run-on sentence ever written. In the English you'll find periods and capitalization, but in the, in the Greek there's no indication of any division in this, these verses. It's just one long sentence. Once Paul gets rolling, it's as if the governor just flies off of the engine. He knows that what he's trying to set before us is deeper and wider and higher and weightier 
than his words will adequately express. So he just throws caution to the wind and goes for it. I read this to you once before, but this is an excerpt from a book that I highly recommend, The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. Sanders says of this marvelous run-on sentence, if this sentence is, as some commentators have said, a monster, I hope I have done nothing to domesticate it. The wildness of the blessing is an important aspect of it, and the reader who does not feel some degree of vertigo from its outrageous breadth of thought just isn't reading it properly. And he goes on to say, the excessiveness of Paul's sentence seeks to disorient us, to disorient our existing categories in order to reorient us by drawing us into the divine orientation, into God's orientation. He says what we need is the miracle of being able to see our own situation from an infinitely higher point of view. We need to start our thinking from a center in God, not in ourselves. That, beloved, is a radical change of grid. And Paul knew that that reorientation requires the miraculous work of God in the hearts of his children individually and corporately. God has to make us see what we've never seen. And that's why everything in chapter 1 of Ephesians after verse 14 is a prayer. And it's not just any prayer. It's a prayer that God will open the eyes of our hearts. Not the physical eyes, but the eyes of our hearts that we might know the hope of His calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. In other words, so that we might know what God gave us in these first 14 verses. We're going to talk a lot about the revolutionary impact of all this on how we pray when we get to the second half of Ephesians 1. But beloved, I hope this will start impacting our prayers immediately. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look more closely at each of these beautiful facets of the incomparable riches that belong to us through our union with Jesus. But for now, let's think about how this overflowing fountain of wealth changes our whole concept of well-being. See, it actually is well with your soul if you belong to Christ. And God intends for you to know that. At the beginning of this message, I said that many Christians struggle with the deep-seated sense that it really isn't very well with their souls. John mentioned that some question whether God really loves them. Or maybe just sort of puts up with them. And very many Christians question whether they can truly be of use to God for the accomplishment of His eternal purposes on earth. But if this beautiful pile of outrageous blessing has actually been given to us, and it has, then that calls for a radical change in our whole grid for assessing how things are going with us. 
See, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then regardless of how you feel, regardless of what your five senses tell you, regardless of what other people tell you, regardless of what your own logic tells you, this is how you're really doing. See, it isn't isn't just well with your soul, brothers and sisters. It is extravagantly, outrageously well with your soul. And God intends for you to know that. The first and most fundamental thing that we need to see in Paul's explosion of praise to God for our blessed condition in Christ is that the blessings are all in Christ. Your well-being is being in Christ. All of it. All of it that matters. The phrases in Christ, in Him, and in the Beloved show up ten times in just eleven verses here. So if you ask God, God, where do I get really blessed? He's going to say to you, in Christ. If you ask Him, how do I get really blessed? He's going to say to you, in Christ. But but what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? It sounds kind of mysterious, doesn't it? We talked about this when we were in John 17 looking at the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth. Our Lord's prayer to His Father the night of His arrest, the night before His crucifixion. Being in Christ means that God has bound you together with Jesus so absolutely that you no longer have an identity apart from Him. That doesn't mean you don't have a distinct identity from every other believer. It simply means that it is impossible to talk about you or any other believer without talking about Christ in you and you in Christ. In Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And that's... All the yous there are plural, just like they are here, but but that's both a corporate and an individual promise because in Galatians 2.20, what does Paul say? Essentially the same thing. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. That's what it means to be in Christ. You and Christ are inseparable. And you are inseparable from everyone who has been bound to Christ. Your well-being is being in Christ. Scan Ephesians 1, 3-14 for a minute if you've got your Bible in front of you and tell me which of the blessings that Paul declares to be true of us in Christ are dependent on our situation. None of them. You know where Paul was when he wrote this epistle? I mentioned it up front, but he was under house arrest in Rome, not knowing if he would eventually be released or beheaded. Those were kind of the two options. Turned out both would be true. He had already been whipped with 39 lashes on five occasions. Some men die the first time that happens. He had been beaten with rods, A crowd had done their best to stone him to death. He had been shipwrecked three times and once spent an entire day and night treading water 
in the open ocean. He had been in danger from rivers and robbers and Jewish authorities who considered him to be a traitor of the highest order. He had suffered prolonged hunger and thirst and exposure to cold and rain. And now he was under arrest in Rome. After a fairly brief release, he would be arrested again and beheaded for his faithful proclamation of Christ. So whenever you're convinced that the intensity of your struggles in this life make you special, (laughs) go read about Paul's life in the book of Acts and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. That'll sort of straighten things out for you. Beloved, you possess, you who are in Christ, possess the exact same outrageous well-being that Paul had. The same well-being that moved him to overflow with praise to God right here in this passage while he was in a Roman prison, imprisoned in Rome. And his well-being had absolutely nothing to do with his situation and neither does yours. Do you see how radical a change that is in the way that we think about well-being? Your well-being is your union with Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Your well-being is is being in Christ and your well-being, if you haven't noticed yet, is extravagant. Just look at the words that Paul uses to describe how you and I came to possess these amazing gifts. He says, God freely bestowed His grace on us in the Beloved. He says, we have been adopted as sons by the Most High God. In Romans 8, he says, we have been made heirs, inheritors of God Himself and fellow heirs with the Son of God. He uses words like lavished to describe the grace of God poured out upon us. The blessings that have been lavished upon you and me by God make us outrageously wealthy in every way that matters. And God intends for us to know that. Your well-being is being in Christ. Your well-being is extravagant. And this is really important. Your well-being is for God's glory. How does Paul start this? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying all the credit goes to Him. He says that God's choosing and adoption of us in Christ is to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. He says that our eternal inheritance in Christ was given to the end, that means with the goal in mind, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. And he says in the very last verse, of the, uh, in verse 14 of this passage, that our coming glorification day, when God fully lays hold of us as His own treasured possession, will all be to the praise of His glory. Brothers and sisters, God made it ridiculously well with you by uniting you with Jesus in order to glorify Himself. And that means in order to show off His character in His creation. It's not you who gets the credit for your salvation. It's God. It's not you who secured your adoption and forgiveness and redemption and inheritance. You had nothing to do 
with any of that. In fact, you had just as much to do with that as you did with being physically born. It's all God. And He did every bit of it to glorify Himself. And what does that mean for your well-being? It means that the outrageous wealth of blessing that you have been given in Christ is as secure and as certain as the glorification of the living God. And that's really, really secure. Your well-being was decreed by God from eternity to eternity. In verse 4, Paul says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That was brought up, also was brought up at the worship. That means God determined to make you his, not just before you existed, (laughs) but before anything existed. And verses 13 and 14 say that when God sealed you with his indwelling Holy Spirit, he was looking forward to the day when our redemption will be fully realized and all of his children will be with him together. A little later in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says that when God accomplished every bit of our salvation through the death of Jesus Christ, when He secured the whole thing for us, He did so in order that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? See, He's saying God poured out His grace toward us in Christ now, so that He can spend the rest of eternity pouring out His grace toward us. And we'll never get to the end of it. (laughs) Child of God, your well-being, the outrageous wealth that you and all of God's children possess, possess in our union with God and Christ was decreed by God from eternity to eternity. And God intends for you to know that. All of the above means that your well-being is 100% guaranteed if your faith is in Christ. But God didn't stop there. The greatest proof that you are destined to outrageous, everlasting riches is the proof that God gave you in person. In the person of the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14 say that when you heard the message of truth, the good news of your salvation through faith in Jesus, and you believed that wonderful message, God gave you His down payment. The first part of the glorious eternal inheritance that He has laid up for you. And that down payment is very personal because it's His presence in you. The Holy Spirit. Paul says that seal that God put on you marks you as His and guarantees your eternal destiny with Him. (laughs) We'll talk more about this in weeks to come, but guys, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have been signed, sealed, and indelibly stamped for delivery to the courts of heaven by the sovereign and all-powerful God of the universe so that you might dwell with Him forever together with all the saints. Your everlasting well-being is 100% guaranteed and God intends for you to know that. Alright, so your well-being is being in Christ. Your well-being is extravagant. Your well-being is for God's glory. Your well-being was decreed by God from eternity to eternity 
and your well-being is 100% guaranteed. God intends for every child of His to know every bit of that with rock-solid certainty. He intends for you to know it and believe it and bank on it every single day of your life. I had a conversation with one twice last week, conversation with two different individuals, about the difference between believing and reckoning. You know what the difference is between believing and reckoning? You can believe something, but if you never think about it, it has no impact on what happens to you today in your thinking. If someone takes you into court of law and says, what do you believe? You'll tell them. But if you never think about it, it doesn't affect your life. And that's why so much, you read Paul, he, you see words like reckon, think, consider, set your mind on, let your mind dwell on, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Because you have to think about it. And you have to pray about it. And you have to agree with God about it. And when you do, when you live and walk in the realm of these precious and magnificent promises, it changes the way you live. And when you don't, it doesn't. When your motivation to live for Christ is weak, God is calling you to turn your face back to Him and behold His lavish grace toward you in Jesus Christ. When your obedience to God feels like an impossible burden, God is calling you to turn your face back to Him and behold His lavish grace toward you in Jesus Christ. When you feel inadequate for the work to which God has called you as His child, God is calling you to turn your face back to Him and behold His lavish grace toward you in Christ. If your prayers are mostly about what you don't have instead of about what you do have, God is calling you to turn your face back to Him and behold His outrageous grace toward you in Jesus Christ. I'll close with this part. In Jesus' marvelous parable of the prodigal sons, plural, in Luke 15, a wonderfully loving and gracious father in the parable had one self-indulgent son and one self-exalting son. You know what he didn't have? He didn't have any grateful sons. When his ungrateful self-indulgent son returned home after squandering his inheritance, finally humbled, finally ready to beg his father for any meager provision that he might see fit to give to him. Remember what his father said to him? He said, well, once you've made amends for all this mess you've made, for all the damage that you've done, and when you've finally proven yourself, then maybe we can talk about whether you might once again have some place in this family. Until then, you can sleep in the barn. Isn't that what that wayward son expected? He miscalculated the goodness and the grace of God. Because what actually happened is as he approached the house, his father ran out to him and hugged him and kissed him and put the best robe on him and put a ring on his hand, no doubt with the family insignia, and put sandals on his feet and then gathered the whole community together to celebrate his son's return with a great feast. The other son... The equally ungrateful, super hardworking, self-exalting son was seething with anger over the outrageous grace that his father had lavished on his foolish brother. When that self-declared faithful son proudly declared his faithfulness to his father, 
Remember what his father said to him? He said, you are so right. I am so sorry I haven't been as good to you as you deserve. Let me fix that. You know, that's not the way this happened, right? Listen to what he said. This is beautiful. He said, my child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. You see what he said there? My child, what do you lack? You have me and you have all that is mine. Beloved, God does not say to his children, I'll bless you once you've consistently shown me that you're worthy of my blessing. He does not say, I'll bless you once you've put away every residue of your inflated sense of your own self-worth. He says, my children, I have already blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ through the union between you and Christ that I brought about. All that I have is already yours. You see the difference between our pathetic expectations of what God will do for us and what God declares He has already done for us? Beloved, God wants you to know, if you believe in Jesus Christ, God wants you to know whose you are and what you have been given in Christ. And He wants you to know that what you have been given is Him. If your faith is in Jesus as your one and only Savior, God wants you to know and believe and bank on the fact that He has already made you an heir of God, an inheritor of the living God, and a fellow heir with His own Son. Christ's own eternal wealth is your eternal wealth. All that He has is already yours. Your best and fullest experience of God and our best and fullest experience of God together with all the saints will not happen until this very brief earthly life under the curse is done and we all stand in the very presence of our loving God with sin and the curse of fading memory. But you are already His and He who is your glorious inheritance is already yours. No circumstance, no illness, no emotional or mental struggle, no amount of suffering, no demon, not even you can take that outrageous wealth of blessing away from you. Ever. And brothers and sisters, God intends for you to know that. Dear Father, open our eyes to see whose we are and what we have been given in Jesus Christ for His glory and for Yours. Amen.